Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. have been in a series of sermons this spring during the season of COVID-19 where we've been sort of exploring the difference between a bunker mentality and a greenhouse mentality. The bunker mentality is something like, let's stick our heads down, let's try to survive and just wait till this thing is over. Uh, We don't want to embrace that sort of mentality during this season. What we want to do instead is trust that God is a good God who has good plans for us and wants to grow us more into the image of his son. And so we wanted to try to embrace more of a greenhouse mentality. We wanted to embrace the idea that as we're in quarantine, as we're social distancing, that this could be a time when God is growing us in unique ways that we couldn't have planned for otherwise. And uh, Joe had been doing a series on the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. And uh, in place of Joe's messages, what I've been hoping to do is to give some messages that might complement the fruits of the Spirit that Joe has been preaching on. And so last week we talked about the patience of God, as patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And this week I want to focus on the kindness of God, as kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. Um, And it's important as we think about what it looks like for God's people to live out kindness we need to know who, whose image we're reflecting uh, as God's people. And, and I think it's helpful to think for a bit about the kindness of God also. And so, um, to begin this morning, I wanted to sort of ask a rhetorical question. And maybe you've been, you've been thinking along these lines already, but I'll, I'll just pose this question to you to sort of get your brain juices flowing this morning. In hindsight, are there ways that the COVID-19 crisis has made you see life differently than you did before? Are there ways as you look back on your life that you can sort of see things with a little more clarity now? Or maybe you can look at how life was going before all of this started happening and see that maybe you had some blind spots uh, before this COVID-19 crisis unfolded uh, in Ohio, in Columbus, Ohio. For me, um, as I look back at Aaron previous to COVID-19, COVID I think if there's something that, um, in hindsight, I could uh, see differently now, it's that I think there was the possibility that I had a, an illusion that I had more control over my life than I really did. I think there was possibly an illusion that I had an ability to make life work, to make life happen in ways that um, now I can see in reality that I didn't quite have the ability the way that I, that I thought I did. And um, for generations in the West, our culture has been sort of living this uh, rationality narrative, as Tim Keller calls it, a rationality narrative. Now, rationality is a good thing. Uh, To be reasonable, to be rational is a good thing. But this is how the rationality narrative goes, that 
generations ago, um, before we were enlightened, before we were able to really advance in science and, and really sort of figure out how the world works, before that time, human beings didn't know a lot. And so we had to have religions, we had to have myths in order to make sense of the world that we lived in to try to find some sort of meaning or some sort of hope uh, to our lives. But as human beings developed, as we advanced, as we reached the age of enlightenment, we began to advance so much that we be, we've been able to sort of figure out how life works. We've been able to figure out how the world works. And through our own ingenuity, our own science, our own technology, we are, we are now able to sort of uh, make life happen. And the, the most important element of this rationality narrative is that human beings have kind of come to believe that we can make life happen apart from God. That the existence of God is actually not ne necessary to human life. We can sort of figure it out on our own. And whether we recognize it consciously or not, we're sort of steeped in this narrative just by nature of living in the West. Um, now, why does this matter at all to the topic of the kindness of God? Here's why. Because if we believe that we can sort of make life work on our own, whether we're conscious of that belief or not, if, if we are living life like we can sort of make life happen, then we're not really aware of neediness. We're not really aware of limitations. We're not really aware of any sort of sense of desperation in our lives. And it's very difficult to experience the kindness of anyone, let alone God, if we feel like we have all we need. If we feel and live life as though we are self-sufficient beings. It's difficult when you don't see your neediness to appreciate the kindness of another. But what I think has been happening in these last several months is I think for many of us, maybe you, you can relate to what I shared. Maybe for many of us, we have, we're, there's a growing awareness of how we don't have life in control, how we can't really make life work on our own, that we are a part of a much bigger picture and we are much more dependent on God and on other people and on systems. And there's all kinds of things that we are totally out of our control. We are a needy people. And maybe there's a fresh awareness of that in our lives. A pastor in Nashville named Scott Saul says this. He says, when God gives us success for a time, when he chooses to put the wind at our backs, by all means, we should enjoy the experience. But we mustn't hang our hats on them because earthly success, in all of its forms, comes to us as a gift from God and is also fleeting. It's also fleeting. Our Lord is telling us not to allow appetizers to replace the feast, or a single apple to replace the orchard, or a road sign to replace the destination to which it points. One of the most challenging things during this season, during COVID-19, is when we experience hardships and pain and suffering and challenges that seemingly are not even really associated with COVID-19 crisis. Uh, the weekend, I think, after things really began to shut down here in Columbus, we experienced a major storm, if you remember. 
And we experienced some flooding in our in the lower level of our home. And that wasn't the first time that that had ever happened, but uh, it was pretty pretty bad compared to previous times. And we had just become pretty fed up with this. And so I got my shovel, and I, uh, for weeks, dug in my backyard and dug deep trenches. I dug dry wells um, deep enough that I could basically stand fully in the, in the holes in the ground that I dug. Um, and we worked really, really hard to try to create a French drain system that hopefully would redirect water from our foundation. Um, if there were to be any major storms like that again, that, that we would stay dry. And when we finished the project, I actually remember saying to Elizabeth, you know, part of me actually hopes that another severe storm comes to give this, to give this system a test. Like I was that confident that we had finally, finally solved this problem. And, and sure enough, earlier this week, that storm came. And sadly, uh, I, I woke up in the middle of the night to go and check on, on our system and, um, rainwater was coming in again. And uh, for me, it was just this sense of desperation of, you know, as hard as I've worked, as much as I've tried to resolve this this problem on my own, I, I can't, I, I just came to this realization, like, I cannot make life work. I can't do this. Um, and so I think there are many of us that like I said, are experiencing this sense of our own neediness, of our own limitations in ways that, that I think are fresh to us, uh, that maybe we didn't really see or experience as much before COVID-19. And what I want to uh, do this morning is sort of ask this question of what would God have to say to us in this new sense of neediness, in this new sense of our own limitation? What might God have to say to us this morning? And so we'll be looking at a passage from 2 Samuel, and we'll be looking in chapter 9, and we'll be basically looking at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 13. So if you have a Bible, you can open to 2 Samuel, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And it says, And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there, still, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodebar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodebar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. We'll stop right there for a moment. Uh, it's important, I think, to try to explain some context of what's happening in this passage. So David, in this part of 2 Samuel, has really come into his own as king of Israel. 
He's just conquered, in some previous chapters, he's just conquered some enemies. Um, Of course, Saul has been deposed. David has come into power. And in many ways, this chapter, chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, is sort of the height of David's kingship. Especially as far as his uh, virtue or or his holiness goes. Um, David has come into power. He's defeated his his enemies. And what happens in this passage, a couple different times you see that, that David wants to show kindness to one of Saul's descendants. Now this word kindness is a pretty loaded word. It's translated kindness here in 2 Samuel 9. In other places it's translated as um, uh, God's loving kindness. But what's important to understand about this kindness that David wants to show to one of Saul's ancestors or one of one of it's not his ancestors his children or grandchildren the reason that uh david wants to do this is because he's experienced god's covenant loyalty to him and this word hesed has all kinds of loyal connotations with it this kindness is not a mere gesture kind of kindness it's a committed covenant loyalty kind of kindness and so uh david uh has covenanted with jonathan he's All along, he had shown admiration and respect for Saul as king, even though Saul was a a horrible king. Because Saul had been anointed by God, he wanted to to be faithful to God by by showing loyalty even to Saul. And so um, he's wanting to, to show kindness, this loyal kindness to a descendant of King Saul. And he asked one of the servants if there are any children or grandchildren of Saul left and this character named Ziba comes on the scene and says yes there is someone and when Ziba says yes there is someone you might expect that he would share this person's name but he doesn't bother to share this person's name uh, he he shares instead his status and you see this in Uh, at the end of verse 3 it says there is still a son of Jonathan he is crippled in his feet and so as far as this servant Ziba uh, thinks all that David really needs to know about this grandson of Saul all all that David needs to know is that he's lame in his feet all that he needs to know is that he's crippled he doesn't really need to bother to actually share his name with David now, part of the reason for this is because uh, to experience a physical disability like lame feet, as bad as it, as it is in our day and age, you can argue that it's even worse in ancient times. Um, it, it's very common in ancient times to believe when someone has, has experienced a deformity or a disability like this, that when someone would look at someone like uh, Mephibosheth, what, would, what they would see is not just something that's wrong with a certain body part. What they would say to themselves is, there must be something wrong with who you are. There must be something wrong with who you are. There must be some reason that you're like this. And so uh, there's a lot, all kinds of social stigma associated with having lame feet. He would have been socially ostracized completely. So it makes sense that Ziba describes him this way rather than even offering his name. But there's something else that's true of Mephibosheth. 
it's what's also true is that he is utterly dependent on other people to take care of him. We see this in verse 4. It says, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. He's in this house in the middle of nowhere. We, it's hard to, scholars are actually unsure exactly where Lodabar is. It's that insignificant of a place. Uh, and so he's in hiding. And he is totally at the mercy of the people of this house to take care of him, to do everything for him. He cannot fend for himself. He is completely dependent for people to, these, the folks in this house, to take care of him, to keep him safe, to provide for him, to do everything for him. He is utterly dependent. And what we also see is that his life is at risk. Towards the end of verse 6, or in the middle of verse 6, uh, it says, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. Now, why does he fall on his face and pay, pay homage? Um, it's, he's probably doing so trembling. Why? Because of who he is. In fact, who he is the grandson of. Now, in ancient times, if you are the living descendant of a deposed king, uh, that's not a very safe place to be as a human being. Because what do kings who currently have power due to the descendants of a deposed king. Well, they tend to kill them. Why? Because they don't want any rivals to the throne. And so it's probable that Mephibosheth is in this house in Lodebar, totally dependent, socially ostracized, and potentially fearing the day when the knock will come on that door from David's soldiers, beckoning him to come out. There's, there's probably an utter fear of that day. So he is dependent, he's ashamed, he's ostracized, and he is afraid. And David calls him to the palace. And let's look next at what David says. And David said, Mephibosheth. Notice that David has found out his name and not just found it out. He addresses him by his name. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you land, all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Debo, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at, the king, at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a, had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. And so when Mephibosheth comes to the palace, he's, he's trembling 
he falls face first to the ground in front of King David. And what is King David's response? Basically, David does three things for Mephibosheth to display this kindness that we've been talking about. The first thing is he displays generosity. And you see this in verse 7. He says, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Now, this is a really big deal. Uh, to be restored the land is, is different than, let's say, uh, someone finds your grandfather's baseball cards and um, gives them to you, as cool as that would be. Uh, this is a day and age where there's not a stock market, where the banking systems are uh, much more simple than they, than they are today. And so your land is your wealth. And to think about the land that David had as king, how much of that was actually taken as received from Saul? And so for King David to say, I am going to give you all of Saul's land is to give so much that it hurts big time. This is an extremely generous gift to Mephibosheth. So David's loving kindness, his his generosity is on display in this passage. We also see a second thing. We see that David provides safety. We see this again in verse 7. He says, Do not fear, do not fear, for I will show you kindness. And at, at the end of this verse, he says, You shall eat at my table always. And so he tells Mephibosheth, You don't need to hide in fear anymore. You don't need to wonder when that knock on the door is going to come, when it's all going to come crashing down, when it's all going to be over for you. In fact, I'm going to invite you into the king's palace. I'm going to take care of you under my leadership, and you're going to be able to sit at my, at my table. David provides safety for Mephibosheth. And lastly, David displays kindness by bestowing honor on Mephibosheth. And we see this towards the end of verse 11. It says, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, note this, like one of the king's sons. Like one of the king's sons. And so Mephibosheth goes from a place where he's ostracized, where he's excluded, where he feels shame. And he's brought to the king's table in a way where he experiences life like a royal son. He experiences life now at David's table like he is royalty, like the king's own sons. And so David's kindness displays generosity. He provides safety for Mephibosheth. He gives him honor where all he experienced for, before was shame. This is a totally life-transforming experience for Mephibosheth. Now, I think when we read a passage like this, it's easy for us to almost be inspired by David. It's easy for us to uh, look at David and say, how can I be like David? And that's a really good impulse because you can argue that this passage, 2 Samuel 9, is the passage where David embodies what Yahweh is like more than any other passage that describes David's life. This is sort of the peak of David's virtuous life. And for us to be 
um, captivated by that and to aspire to want to be like David is really good. It's a really good thing. But, but, I think what God might be calling us to do this morning is to recognize how we're like Mephibosheth. To try to come with fresh eyes to look at Mephibosheth's life and see, are there ways that we are actually more like Mephibosheth? There's a a grief expert named Elizabeth Kugler-Ross who has written this. She says, The most beautiful people are the ones that have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of those depths. Are there ways we can identify with Mephibosheth? Are there ways we can say to ourselves, I don't feel safe? Are there ways we can identify with Mephibosheth and say to ourselves, I don't feel honor. There are these questions in my mind of, is there something wrong with me? (laughs) Do I have what it takes? Am I lovable? Am I wanted? Am I significant? Are we honest with ourselves about the reality that we, we face those kinds of questions about our own identity? Are there ways that we feel like we just desperately need to be provided for, to be taken care of? These are ways we can identify with with Mephibosheth in this passage. But uh, like I said before, this is not just a story about a king who's a good guy. David actually embodies what the one true God is really like in this passage. And so... I want you to to do your best to hear this, that God's kindness towards you means that he is generous towards you. He knows what you need, and he is giving you what you need, and he will give you what you need, and then some. He's a lavish, generous God. Hear this also, that you are safe with him. You're safe. If your faith is in Jesus, you are ultimately safe because of the one true God and his commitment, his kindness to you. Think of the words of Jesus in the New Testament where he says, no one can snatch them from my hands. You are safe. And lastly, hear this also, that you have a seat of honor at the king's table. That Jesus doesn't just put up with you. He doesn't just tolerate you. But he sees you as valuable. He wants you to be at his table. He loves you. He wants you to, to feel as though you matter because you really do. These are the different ways that God's kindness translates in, into our lives. But I, this message wouldn't be complete without facing the reality that there are some of us who do not struggle at all to feel like Mephibosheth right now. There are some of us that are very, very aware of our neediness, of our desperation. There are some of us who don't need to be convinced that life is hard and that we can't make life work because we're not making life work. It's not working. Well, if that's you this morning, I don't have any easy answers I wish I did. I wish there was a quick fix to make you experience life differently, but I can't. 
There are no easy answers, but I hope to leave you two things that you can try to hold on to as you experience this sense of neediness and, and desperation. The first thing is this, that you might hold on to a memory. And what would that memory be of? Well, the memory would be that you have a Savior who hung on a cross and who cried out on that cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have a Savior who knows what it feels like to experience life where God does not feel so kind. You can argue, actually, that forsakenness might be the opposite of kindness. That at least in that moment, you have a Savior who knows what it feels like to feel forsaken by God. And the beautiful thing about that is that somehow, mysteriously, even in the midst of that feeling of forsakenness, God was up to something good. He was up to something really good. And if God can accomplish good through the forsakenness of the Son of God, He can accomplish good through your own feeling of forsakenness. Hold on to the memory of Jesus on the cross saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The second thing you might hold on to is hope. And what would that hope be of? That even if right now you don't experience God's kindness, doesn't seem like God is kind in light of the way that your life is going right now, hold on to the hope that there will be a day when God's kindness will be indisputable. That there will be a day when to all of heaven to all God's creatures, to all the universe, it will be clear and indisputable that God is kind to you. That he is kind to you. And I, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to flip to Revelation 19 because I want you to, to see these words of what God promises to his people. This is a promise of our future as believers in Jesus. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Lord Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage lamb of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It has granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Just in case it's not clear who these words are from, these are the true words of God. And so, how could you hold on to hope? You could hold on to hope that even if right now it doesn't feel like you're at the king's table, even if, if, if you don't feel right now like you're experiencing God's kindness, that there will be a day when you will be at this marriage supper, this marriage feast of the Lord, and you will have a place of honor at the king's table. And in this moment, it will be clear that God has been kind to you 
even in the midst of the hardships, and will will be kind to you for, for all eternity future. He gives you this seed of honor. And we even see, uh, it says, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of who? Of the saints. And so, as important as it is, that we have been justified through faith, through what Jesus has done for us, and we have union with Christ, and we have Christ's imputed righteousness to us. All of that is so significant and so important. But mysteriously, somehow, at the marriage feast of the Lamb, we'll be clothed in bright, pure linen. But that linen will represent the righteousness, the righteous deeds of the saints. And so what that says is that your faithfulness in the midst of your forsakenness matters. Your faithfulness to try to love God with all of who you are, to try to love your neighbor as yourself in the midst of feeling forsaken matters. That it will be a part of the beauty of being at that marriage supper one day. So there's no quick fix. I wish I could make it better. But we can hold on to the memory of Jesus' forsakenness, we can hold on to the hope of there being a marriage feast, a supper, a table, where God's kindness to us will be indisputable. And when we think about a message like this, we we realize that Jesus is not an add-on. Jesus is not a means to the end of sort of making our life work. That's not what we're doing when we are Christians and we come to church and we worship worship Jesus. Jesus is not a means to our ends to sort of make our life work. Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is our only hope. And like many of the saints that have gone before us, we can live into that reality also. Let me pray. God, I pray uh, for us that uh, in the midst of our of our experience at times of life not working, of not being able to have the ability to make life happen. God, would would you help us to experience and know your kindness and to trust and have faith in your kindness, even when so many things don't seem to add up in the moment to your kindness? Would you give us that gift of faith? Or would you help us to hold on to the memory of of your son feeling this very same way on the cross. Would you help us to have hope that even if we can't see it now, that there will be a day where your kindness will be indisputable, God. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.